All right, well, hey, good morning, Crossroads. It is great to see you today. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy to welcome you. In fact, today we are wrapping up our series called Are We There Yet? And we base that on a, an actual road trip that we took as a staff, our creative arts team, but also we've been joining with the book of Exodus, joining in on their road trip out of Egypt to the promised land. And so I want to tell you, we have an outline for our message. It's a light blue sheet found in your program. And today I want to talk to you. I want to give you the message called, Don't Get Too Comfortable. Let's watch our last video from our road trip. Take a look. Hey, Crossroads. Well, here we are at the final stop of our road trip in beautiful downtown Eureka, California. And can I tell you, we've had a blast. We've had so much fun, but I got to tell you, I'm ready to go home. Uh, going on vacations, having a good time, that's all great. But can I tell you, I have a mission to fulfill. I have a church to build. I have a job to do, and so do you. And most importantly, the person who loves me the most is waiting for me at home. This is a trip, but this is not my home. Well, I'm sharing that with you because uh, we live in a culture that pursues and craves comfort over calling. And whenever you take a great road trip or a fun vacation, it's so easy to think, wouldn't it be nice if we can just stay here and just relax here and live this way all the time? Well, nothing wrong with a fun vacation, but this is not our home. This is not our calling. And God had that same thing for the people of Israel. God gave them a mission, a calling to go into the promised land. But along their journey, they started to get comfortable and they wanted to settle and they began to sacrifice uh, for comfort over calling. And God had a message for them and he had a message for us. And that message is, don't get too comfortable because this is not your home. And I'm excited to share this message with you now. So God bless you, Crossroads. Let's do this. All right, everybody, pull out your outline for the message. And right off the top, I want you to see the same thing you saw in that video clip is the same thing that the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11, 12, on the top of your outline. This is what it says. Friends, this world is not your home. God is trying to tell you you're not home yet. So don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your e ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. And then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join you in the celebration when he arrives. Friends, this verse is saying, in your life on this earth, don't get too comfortable. And here's why. Do you know, do you know the danger of getting too comfortable here in this life? Would you write this down? It's there on your outline. It happens every time. Comfort leads to complacency. Complacency leads to compromise. And then once you start compromising, it always ends 
in a crash. And friends, think about it. It's true in every area of life. It's true in your fitness. It's true in your marriages, in your relationships. It's true in your work life. And friends, it is true in your spirituality and in the life of the church. Friends, you can, in the church, you can get too comfortable, start taking God's grace for granted. Then you get complacent. You start making compromises, and then you crash. And can I tell you, the biggest crash that I see people making is they start trading in their calling for comfort. And when you do that, friends, write this down. It happens. Write this down. You miss out on God's purpose for your journey. God's purpose for your journey, for, my, for our journey as a church. See, what I want you to do, we're going to go to the book of Exodus. I want you to see this because in the book of Exodus, perhaps the most important passage in the whole book of Exodus, where God gives the purpose for their journey, uh, going to the promised land, in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Look at your outline. Look what it says. God is speaking, and he says these words. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth, for all the earth belongs to me. Now, catch this. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, would you underline the phrase, you will be my kingdom of priests. You will be my kingdom of priests. And I want you to understand, you, you know, we usually think of the Catholic Church when we think of priests. But I want to tell you, all throughout history, there were priests in all the different religions. And the priest's job, would you write this down, was to represent God to the people and bring the people to God. That was their job. And I want to tell you, in this, in this message, in this verse, I want to be clear. God isn't saying to the Jews, his chosen people, he didn't just love the Jews. We know clearly that for God so loved the world, he loved everybody. So here's the deal. I want you to see it on the screens. This is what I want you to look at. God was establishing a chosen people with the purpose and privilege to represent God to the world so that the world could know him. Now think about that, friends. And I want you to think about how does the story of Exodus relate to your life right now today? Here's what I want you to see. In the same way that God sent the Israelites a savior named Moses to lead them out of slavery and take them to the promised land, God sent us a savior named Jesus who came to set us free from sin and death and lead us to the promised land called heaven. And as we journey through this life, as we journey with God, do you know that we are all called to be God's priests, God's ministers? We are called, all of us, you and me, part of our purpose is we're called by God to represent his love and grace and power and goodness so that the world can know him. That's why in the New Testament, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he's talking to all Christians when he says this word, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. 
Friends, what this verse is saying is that in the church, you don't just have one minister. In the church, every member's a minister. All of us are called together to represent God as we go on this road trip of life with him. As we're going to the promised land along our journey, God is calling you and me as a church for all of us to be his priests, his people, his ministers who fulfill the vision of the church. And the vision of the church is simply this, to lead seekers, to love Christ, love others, and live life on purpose. You know, the truth is, as I look around, friends, can I tell you, so many people are going on their road trip through life, and they have no clue what their purpose is. I mean, you ask them, hey, what's the purpose of your life? Uh, uh. And see, when you don't have clarity on your purpose, you will always default to comfort. What's the purpose? Uh, to be happy, I guess. Friends, you know that there's some people that have crystal clarity on their purpose. In fact, I'll never forget one teenager. And guys, never, never underestimate what God can do in the life of a young person who commits to follow him. Remember, when we first started this church 23 years ago, I met a teenager at Lake Elizabeth. And I was talking to him, I said, young man, do you know the purpose of your life? And without blinking an eye, he looked at me and said, yeah. The purpose of my life is to go to heaven and to take as many people with me as possible. Man, that kid had clarity. How about you? Do you know that's our purpose? That's our calling? That's our mission? While we're still here on this earth because we're not home yet, we're called to go to heaven and to bring as many people with us as possible. In fact, you know, that's why next week we're starting a brand new series called This Is Us. And guys, I put a couple of invitations in your program. My challenge to you, don't get too comfortable. I'm going to challenge you, get out of your comfort zone. Use these to invite some people to come with you. And I want to encourage you, every one of you, invite two people this week to come with you to church next weekend as we kick off our new series called This Is Us. Now, with this foundation, I think we're ready to wrap up the book of Exodus. Guys, I want to teach you three key lessons from the end of Exodus. And here's the first lesson. Would you write this down? Lesson number one is that God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. In Exodus chapter 34, God is commanding Moses to come meet with him on Mount Sinai. And God allows Moses to get a glimpse of his glory. And in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 8, this is what it says. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generation. Now let me stop here. Let me say very clearly, God is not saying that he punishes our parents. He's not saying he punishes your kids and your grandkids for your sins. The Bible's very clear that God doesn't do that. 
What God is saying, and He's saying to all us parents, is that our sins are bigger than just us. There's this whole idea of generational sins being passed down to our children and grandchildren, meaning you can actually trace sins like abuse and addiction and alcoholism from generation to generation. And so parents, can I tell you, listen to me. This is a huge wake-up call when you understand how you live leaves a multiplying legacy for good or for bad for your future generations. Now, can I tell you when Moses, when he caught this glimpse of God, this all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing God of compassion and mercy and forgiveness, what was his response? Well, again, the end of the verse says this, Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped and worshiped. What do you think of when you hear the word worship? Now, for some of you, worship means music. You think, you know, that's the that's songs we sing before our message. That's our, our time of worship together. For some of you, when you hear the word worship, you think of church. And, man, I go to church. I go to a worship service. And some of you go, man, I'm going to worship. I, I hope I get something out of church today. And can I tell you, as your pastor, I hope you get something every time you come. I hope you get inspired I hope you get encouraged. I hope you get challenged to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of every area of your life. But can I tell you this? The primary heart of worship is not coming to get. Worship is about coming to give. Coming to give God the praise, the glory, and the honor due His name. In fact, the actual definition of the word worship, it literally means worship where you come together to give God highest place, highest priority, highest worth in your life, and to be very intentional about that. In fact, on your outline, would you write this down? My, my favorite definition of the word worship, it comes from the Greek word worship, which means to blow a kiss towards God, towards heaven. Can I tell you, after 28 years of marriage, to this day, I'm still head over heels in love with my wife, Karen. Man, I adore this amazing, beautiful life partner. I feel honored every day to share life with her. I'm not just saying that. And can I tell you, sometimes at church, we both serve and we're running. Sometimes at events or church service, we don't always get to sit together. We don't always get to be side by side, but sometimes I'll find myself sitting across a room at a party or at church and I'll just look at this amazing beauty and I can't help it. Man, I'll look at her, and man, if she looks at me, I'll just sometimes, I'll just blow her a kiss. And I'll mouth the words, love you, honey, love you. Can I tell you, that is reserved for my wife and my wife alone. I promise you, I'm not out blowing kisses to other, in fact, if I was blowing kisses to other women, I'll tell you, I'd be, the, last night I heard someone said, dead. You know, my wife would, that would not go over well. That's reserved for my wife and my wife alone. And friends, can I tell you this? Our time of worship is when we come together to declare that God has highest worth, first place, that we have a love that's reserved. Love you, Lord. Reserved for God alone. And can I tell, can I tell you, some of you, 
as you sit here today, you are in danger of getting too comfortable in your worship. You know, I came across this statistic that just broke my heart that says the average Christian today attends church just over one time a month. Just blew me away. I think some people have adopted this. Well, you know, I'll, I'll go to worship when it's convenient for me, when I can fit it into my schedule. And here's the danger, friends. Look at it. Remember, comfort leads to complacency, which leads to compromise, which leads to a crash. And I've seen it happen hundreds of times, just like Debbie. You know, this lady, Debbie, she used to come to Crossroads. She started coming. God started changing her life. Man, doing miracles in her heart and her family. They were doing great. But then she's, the slippage began. And she'd miss an occasional Sunday. And then it became two or three weeks. And then a couple months. And then I didn't see Debbie for a long time. One day I was walking down to Safeway right over here to buy some lunch. And I ran into Debbie. And I was excited. Man, Debbie, it's so good to see you. How are you? How's your family? Oh, pastor, we're not doing good at all. I said, oh, no, Debbie, what, what happened? And she said, pastor, we stopped going to church. She said, that's when everything went to hell. I said, Debbie, come back. Come back. You know, I've shared this so many times. I've made the point that coming to worship God, building worship into your weekly flow of life, it's like building spiritual bowling bumpers into your life. Do you know when you come to church every week, week by week by week, man, it's like having spiritual bowling bumpers. Even if you get off track a little bit, the church, it bumps you right back into the lane, right? So you're going through your week, man, you start to drift, you get a little off track, you come to church and guess what? God speaks to you, knocks you back to center. You know the good thing about bowling bumpers, right? They keep you out of the gutter. They keep your life out of the gutter. And that's why I want to challenge you. Don't get too comfortable. God is worthy of our worship. And I want to challenge you. Next week, we kick off this new series, This Is Us. And I want to just say, make a pre-decision. Decide in advance, I'm going to come and make worship a priority. And I pray that you won't miss a single one because it will bless and change and grow your life. That's the first lesson. Second lesson, would you write this down and talk about don't get too comfortable. This is a very uncomfortable lesson, and it goes like this. God answers this really difficult question. Why would a loving God command murder? Why would a loving God command murder? You know, that was a very important question to my daughter, Sierra, my daughter, Sierra, she just started grad school this past week, and she's training to be a, a, a child therapist. All her life, she's always loved kids, and she's always had a very sensitive heart to suffering in the world. And so all throughout her life, we're teaching Sierra, we're teaching her this lesson, honey, God is love. God loves you. God loves us. God loves the world. But as she grew, she really wrestled with the question, if God is so loving... Why did he tell the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and kill all the people, including the women and children? Now, that's a tough question, is it not? Well, can I tell you, if you read the whole Bible, what you'll discover is that this command is not an arbitrary 
or ongoing command. Meaning this was never to be an ongoing practice, meaning we are never to kill again in the name of God. This was for a specific place, a specific plan, a specific purpose. And today, let me say loud and clear, today, anyone who kills another person for religious purposes in the name of God, they're not following the God of the Bible. That's for sure. Now, what you see in Exodus in answering this question is out of God's love and out of God's justice, he did something drastic to put an ultimate end to depravity, disgusting sexual violence against women and children, and evil practices in these cultures that out of their worship of false gods, they would sacrifice their children by burning them alive. And so God, he took drastic action to stop because even the children who survived would grow up to perpetuate these evil, violent, disgusting practices. He also did it to purposely establish, remember, he's leading the, the Israelites into the promised land, but he's establishing a people who would represent him to the world so the world could know him as a God of love and justice. So God used the Israelites to administer a specific justice. And when you say, well, that's not very fair. Well, he used the same thing. He used other societies to administer justice against the Israelites for their rebellion. Now, there on your outline, I want us to come back to, well, why would the Bible say this? Well, I think the book of Exodus answers this question. In Exodus 34, 12 through 14, it says this. It deepens our understanding of why did God call them to wipe them out. God's saying, be very careful never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are going. If you do, he's saying, if you don't wipe them out completely, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their asterisk poles. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. Underline this phrase, a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. See, I want you to see here that God gave this command not only because he loved his people, the Israelites. Do you know God gave this command because he loved you? He cared about you. He didn't want anything to stop his plan of his people becoming his priests so that the world, so that you and I could know him. So he took drastic action. So in answering this question, how can a loving God show such judgment and wrath? Kind of makes me think of one, one time with my kids. One of my, my kids in their early teenage years, man, they started hanging out. They started connecting with a person who was a bad influence. And it became very clear to Karen and I that this person had very bad intentions for our child. Now, as loving parents, can I tell you, we did not hesitate to cut that relationship off. Man, we didn't blink an eye. As loving parents, we told our child, you are not allowed to hang out or have any contact with this person ever again. They are out of your life, period. Now, we did that as loving parents because, guess what? We we're jealous for our kids. 
Man, we love our child. We care about their future. We're not just going to sit back and allow this person to mess up their life. No way. Now, from our perspective, it was the loving thing to do. From our child's perspective, they did not interpret that as loving. You're mean. You're not, that's not fair. You're cruel. I hate you. You ever hear that, parents? They didn't understand that we were guarding, we were protecting, we were showing love, we were being jealous for our children. Now let's continue reading in the book of Exodus 34, 15, and 16. God goes on to say, you must not make a treaty of any kind with the people living in the land. They lust after their gods, offering sacrifices to them. They will invite you to join with them, and they will seduce your sons to commit adultery against me by worshiping other gods. Now, underline that phrase, commit adultery against me. Now, most of you guys know it's the book of Exodus that God gave us the Ten Commandments. And you know how the Ten Commandments begin. You shall have no other gods before me, no idols. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Do you know God describes idolatry? He equates that to spiritual adultery. Idolatry equals spiritual adultery. To God, for his people to, after he saved them and rescued them and led them out and healed them and helped them, for his people to turn and worship other gods and other idols to him, that was as bad as a spouse committing adultery. God said, no way. Can I tell you that as a pastor, I've done over a hundred weddings, and in all the weddings, I have never, I've never seen vows go where the, where the groom says, you know, I promise to love, honor, and cherish, and be faithful to you Monday through Friday. But I want the weekends to be free to play. I've never seen it. And you know why, friends, because you know that marriage is an exclusive relationship. Well, do you know God is exclusive He's jealous about his love relationship with you. Worship is exclusive. Just as spouses don't tolerate adultery, God does, does not tolerate spiritual adultery. It's the ultimate betrayal in your relationship with him. Now, there's one last thing I have to say to you, so please bear with me on this one. The God we worship, he is compassionate. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. And I want to tell you, he's all those things to you and to me. And he, he was all those things to the nations he condemned. But you need to hear this, my friends. There comes a time when mercy runs out and judgment comes in. It was true for these evil nations it was true for the Israelites, and it's true for you and for me. There comes a day when mercy runs out and judgment comes in. In fact, on your outline in Ezekiel 33, 11, look at this verse. It says, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Man, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to turn to, to him in love and trust and faith. But friends, 
God seems to give people chance after chance after chance to turn from their wicked ways. But here's the takeaway. This is what I want you to hear personally. Don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. The Bible is clear. Judgment comes to all of us. Came to the evil nations. Came to the Israelites. And friends, it will come to you and me. The Bible is clear, Hebrews 9.27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And some of you, some of you, you're here today, and you know your heart is hard towards God. You know your soul's in trouble. And you've pushed God aside. You've made all the excuses. And yet here God is again in this very moment. Man, he's reaching out to you. He's extending grace. He's giving you a divine wake-up call. And he's saying, it's not too late. Not too, you can still turn to me. You can still repent. You can still cry out, Jesus, forgive me, save me, come into my life. Friends, there will be a time where it's too late for you. And I am... I don't know how to do it any better. I wish I did, but I'm pleading with you. And don't let another day go by. Trust Christ. Give your heart to God and do it today. Well, there's one final lesson from the book of Exodus that I want to drive home. The third lesson is to offer God first place and very practically in your work and in your wages your work and in your wages. Exodus 34, 26 says, as you harvest your crops, that was their work because they were farmers and shepherds, bring the very best of the first harvest. That was their wages, what they grew, what they bring your very best. And it says, to the house of the Lord your God. That was to the church. See, as God was establishing his people, he's saying, hey, just don't just do your work and earn your wages to spend it all on yourself so that you can get real comfortable because I have a purpose, I have a vision, I have a mission for your life. Don't use all you got to build your own little kingdom. I am calling you to do your work and spend your wages to partner in building God's kingdom so that people can know him. I was thinking about this, and i got to be honest, I was a little embarrassed. I just had this profound memory. When I was a little kid, I grew up in a Catholic background, and I want to tell you, I thank God for the Catholic Church. That's where I first learned to believe in Jesus and the Bible. And, but, you know, here's my memory. When I was a little kid, my mom used to get me dressed up on Sunday. She'd comb my hair. She'd give me a quarter to put in the offering basket, and then she'd send me an offering plate, and then she'd send me off to church but my parents never went themselves. And so as a little kid, I'd walk, to, I'd walk to this Catholic church and I'd go through the whole mass, but I always kept the quarter for myself. <laughs> and on the way home from church, I'd walk home, I'd stop by this little market and I'd always buy a Coke and a candy bar. And I remember I'd sit on the curb, a little boy, I'd drink my Coke, I'd eat my candy bar. And can I tell you, even in my head as a little kid, I would rationalize all the reasons why this wasn't really wrong. Even as a little kid, I would think, you know, well, it's only a quarter. You know, that big church, they don't really need my quarter. 
And even as a kid, I thought, and God wants me to be happy, right? And friends, Coke and candy bars made this kid happy. And so I was thinking of that. Can I tell you, can I tell you, <laughs> me keeping the quarter, it wasn't a money problem. It was a heart problem. Do you know Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus was saying here, you give your money to what you really love most. And can I tell you, little kid, I, I love my candy. I love my Cokes. I love myself more than I loved God. But as I came to know the love of God through Jesus Christ, something shifted in my heart something changed and out of my love for God and my desire to fulfill his purpose friends I began to give my quarters and my dollars and my tithes and offerings to express my heart for God out of a desire for more and more people to know him and that's what we see happening in the book of Exodus in Exodus 35 21 it says this all whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved, came and brought their sacred offerings to the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle is simply a fancy word for a place of meeting, a house of worship, a church place. And in this case, it was a tent. God commanded his people to build a place of worship where the people could come together and worship him. And as you read the book of Exodus, what you find out, just like Today, back in those days, I don't know how to say it well, but just the fact is ministry cost money. Ministry cost wages and offerings. And God called his people to give offerings so that the temple, the tabernacle, could be built. And then the last verse on your outline, I want you to see it. Exodus 40, 33 and 34 says at the very end of the book it says then they hung the curtains forming the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and he set up the curtain at the entrance of the courtyard so at last moses finished the work and then the cloud covered the temple and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle would you underline the phrase so at last moses finished the work now let me bring it to us and we'll end our service do you know there's a week that doesn't go by that I don't stand somewhere around this church building and just in awe go, God, this is a miracle that we're even here. It's a miracle. But I want to ask you this question because God built this place, this property. He's provided this place where every race, color, background can come hear the message of Christ and worship God. But I want to ask you, you know, where did we get the money to pay for this building? Look around this room. Ordinary, everyday people used their work and their wages to stay. Instead of spending all my money on Coke and candy bars and myself, I'm going to use some of my work, some of my wages to help build the church so more and more people can know the love of Christ. And friends, this building, Moses finished the work. We're not finished. We're not home yet. We still need to work. We still need to give. We still need to build. We still need to reach this community. 
And we're asking all, because all of us are priests, all of us are ministers, if we will all do our part together to worship and serve and preach the gospel and give, God's going to build something that will change lives for all eternity. And I want you to have the purpose and privilege of being part of it. And now I want you to see a group of people who are actually doing that. I'd like to ask all our life group leaders to come now and stand along the front. Life group leaders, come on. Come quickly. Let's welcome them as they come. I want you to see these are, these are some of our priests. These are some of our ministers. And they are opening their hearts, their homes, all throughout the, all nights, all throughout the week, different times, different places, different studies. In fact, it blesses me to know, do you know that we have grief recovery groups? We have a group of parents with special needs, children. We have a dance group. I'm leading, come check out my group. I'm leading a Spartan group where we exercise right in here and train for Spartan races. There's couples groups. There's, there's mixed groups. There's young adult groups. We have a group just for you. But I wanted you to see these guys because I want to commission them because they're here to do the work of God. And friends, they're changing lives. And I wanted you to see them because after the service, you can go meet them and sign up for one of their groups at the uh, family group life, the, the, the life group fair out on the courtyard. So I'm going to ask you to stand in their honor. We want to commission and pray for all our life group leaders. And uh, hey, Lance, you're leading a creative arts, like those interested in the arts, right? Part of the the heart of the artist group. So, man, see the camera, you're ready. So, thank you for being here. All right, let's uh, lift a hand towards heaven. Let's bless these guys. Father, for all our life group leaders, we ask you to anoint and inspire them and use them to build great life-changing groups that would help us as a church family know you more, love each other better, and make a difference in the world. Bless and fill every single group. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Congratulations, guys.